You're listening to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. We record this show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to Red Flag Radio. I know we've had a little bit of a break. It's Thursday the 27th of January and we're in 2022, Um, another epic year, no doubt, to come. I wanted to thank our Patreon supporters for your continued support. If anyone wants to join them and support us as part of your New Year's resolutions or whatever people do at the beginning of the year um, to make themselves feel good. I think this would make you feel really good. Patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast, the most radical revolutionary socialist podcast you'll find here broadcasting from Australia and around the world. And thanks to our international listeners and a shout out to all of you too. Uh, and a welcome back. Um, we've had a bit of a break between episodes, as you might have noticed, if you're a fan or if you're new and you've been looking at the back catalogue. Uh, quite a lot going on, as you can imagine, including me finishing my PhD. So congratulations to me. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, we wanted to start this year um, with kind of just going back to basics, I guess, and a discussion about where we are politically and why we think on this podcast that people listening, if you're not already, should be uh, convinced of socialist politics, but not just that, but kind of getting more active this year within socialist politics and socialist organisations. So that's what this episode is about. Where are we and what's going on? What the fuck is going on in the world and um, what can we do about it? So I'm very pleased to have um, Jess Lenahan, who's first time on the podcast, I can't believe it, because uh, she's a friend of mine and a, col- <laughs> and a comrade and um, a socialist, obviously. And Naui Jimenez, who is here um, partly as a socialist, well, fully as a socialist, but partly because um, you might know her and she doesn't want you to know her from her face around <laughs> on posters around the Moreland area in the last election for the Victorian Socialists. Also an environmental activist, and if you've been to any of the um, campaign against racism and fascism counter rallies to the far right in the last few months, you'll have seen Nowy up on the stage um, giving them what for in a very impressive mm. way. So that's Nowy and Jess, and of course Liam is back with us. Yep. This podcast wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Liam. So how have you been? Uh, not too bad. I mean. I'm- you know, I'm one of those many Melburnians who is um, in the kind of unofficial lockdown, you know what I mean? Because yeah. Melbourne is in the worst days of the pandemic, thanks to Daniel Andrews adopting his let it rip uh, strategies in September. So all the, yeah. all the health experts then said January is going to be a bloodbath. And it turns out they're right, you know, record death, record death tolls, record daily spread. Um, and of course, schools are about to reopen and all the rest of it. So yeah. um, I'm doing all right to be surviving amidst that, I guess. Yeah, I think that was similar to how I feel and we're all here in um also kind of at the end of a heat wave in mm-hmm. Melbourne so it's hot and kind of um yeah a bit of a grim time but we're going to talk about <laughs> what we can do about it today um but let's start with a picture of kind of where we're at so Liam just said there the, the COVID situation is the worst it's been in Australia and for international listeners that might kind of be surprising because that you you've gone through 
those kind of peaks internationally, but again, happening um, even with more intensity with Omicron variant of COVID, obviously. Um, where are we then, Jess? This is, you know, how to yeah. give a quick answer to a huge question, but where are we at the beginning of 2022 in Australia? Yeah, well, um, like as Liam alluded to and then and you, Rose, we've gone from a situation where there was barely any cases in Australia for a long period, so kind of bumping along the bottom of the graph, um, to a situation now where there's quite an extreme uh, social crisis playing out. Um, and you probably saw in the news today and over the last couple of days that the uh, there's a lot of communities, Aboriginal communities in Central Australia that are now having a huge number of cases. This is a place of extreme poverty and deprivation. There's no healthcare system, no services. Um, and so that's obviously a pretty alarming and disturbing kind of development. Um, there's been more than a 1,000 people across Australia have died in January already. And people, you have to remember that the population of Australia is kind of relatively smaller than other places. So if you want to compare that internationally, it's like you need to double it to compare it to England or add a zero to compare it to America. And then I think that starts to give a sense of the severity uh, of the situation in Australia now. And so that is important for socialists to highlight because in the media and uh, the approach of the ruling class is to really actually just kind of play this down, you know, so they'll cover it and there's stats out there but not with the kind of just uh, energy and vitriol that that situation really warrants. And you think if it was a 1,000 people dying from some other situation, like a 1,000 Scotch college kids caught something on campus, like the kind of mass outcry that you could have um, compared to what has happened now, a 1,000 people gone when it was not their time, um, that really shows, I think, how much it's all kind of being glossed over, how much it's the media is trying to just make it white noise, you know, okay, there's a cost but it's the most important thing is that we just keep open um, and particularly keep the economy um, going. Um, so I just want to say something quickly about how we got here because that kind of turnaround is pretty uh, significant and it didn't have to be like this. It's not just because Omicron is so transmissible, which it is that, but it's because we had a really – um, aggressive and successful campaign from capitalists, uh, from right-wing parliamentarians and the like, and defended in the media um, to just open up, let it rip. They haven't liked any of the health measures. They've been against every single health policy from day one. Um, anything that might temporarily mean they can't turn a profit, they've campaigned against. Um, and that campaign has been really successful um, and as Liam mentioned right at the start, including uh, Daniel Andrews kind of getting caught up into that, getting folded into that campaign as well, has just meant that they, um, yeah, have just let Omicron rip through the community. Um, but also, and I would say it's about the long-term underfunding of healthcare in Australia. So that kind of neoliberal model 
um, that both Labor and Liberal governments have presided over. So shaving down the number of beds, shaving down the staff, the funding, so that there was already huge problems in the healthcare system. That meant when something like this happened, the defences there were so inadequate. And there was an opportunity to start to rectify that situation um, because they did hold off cases in Australia for some time. Like there was a real opportunity there to start to restructure the healthcare system um, and they just didn't take it. So then when we get the kind of a very transmissible variant, who knows what other variants there are to come, but when we get that, um, there's really just the whole situation was a tinderbox and uh, now we've seen, now we're watching the consequences of that. Mm. Yeah, I think if you... Um if people go back and listen to the episode we did, oh, I can't remember, it was in 2020 with Louise O'Shea called The Neoliberal Pandemic. I think a whole bunch of those things that we were talking about then have kind of come true, but, yeah. you know, magnified to an extent, which is just kind of like would have been hard to comprehend at that point, but also easy to predict. I think the politics mm. now of, you know, everyone needs to just protect themselves. There's no possible public health response that we can have has been a capitulation really from all the major parties in Australia to, okay, we're just going to go with what, you know, business wants, the needs of uh, the capitalist class in Australia basically. And that's, yeah, Mm. the consequences of that are just, yeah, really difficult to kind of emotionally deal with, I guess, but also I think politically it makes it harder because what our position is that there is still plenty of public health responses that you could take and that would work and that could still work if we did them right now, today. Um, seems like a very small voice in the bigger political landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean at any point there are things that governments could do to lower the cases and should do. Um, and it's important, I think, to understand that the fact that they don't is nothing to do with people not supporting it. It's not a democratic measure. It's not due to popular campaigning. Most people have totally reasonable positions um, about just, you know, sensible health measures that could be brought in to just um, lower, uh, you know, like density quotients, all kinds of things that that would just make things, um, would lower the cases. And the kind of social support, like letting people just stay home and recover um, when they get sick, not being forced back to work to be infectious. Mm. Um, I was reading some research the other day that they think that that's one of the possible causes of, um, for some people, long COVID, that they're not able to just take that time out to rest and recover. They have to go back to work and that means there can be lots more complications there. So that whole kind of approach of who cares if you get sick? Who cares if you're not well? Who cares if you infect your family and your workmates or whatever? The only thing we care about is business as usual um, is what is put us in this situation where there's tens of thousands of cases um, and the kind of huge burden on the healthcare system where nurses are crying out for uh, more support and something to be done to just lower the cases. Um, that's a political choice that governments are making and remaking every day. Yeah. I was talking to a friend uh, um, a couple of days ago about the um, uh, the, re- the kind of requirements for isolating if you've had COVID mm. and the fact that it went 
from 14 days to seven days. And she was like, but wait, how, how has the science <laughs> yeah. changed about this? And I was like, the science hasn't changed. She's like, wait, but it can't just be a political thing because they want people to go back to work. That can't be it, can it? Because it's not safe, right? And it's like, correct, it's not safe and correct, it is just a political decision because they want people to go back to work. And it's like I think people find that contradiction like they want to find another way to explain it, you know, but it's mm. just so obvious now that these measures are being dropped or changed or amended purely for the sake of profit making. Um, yeah, so. I think that's um, I think that's super true. Like I was unfortunately one of those people that got COVID at the start of the year, and on day seven, you know, I I was lucky enough to have a rapid antigen test, and you know, you were still testing positive in the idea that you should re-enter um, the workforce or go out to restaurants and like put your money back into the economy is absolutely um, crazy, really. And yeah, I think for a lot of people, that changing in particular of the quarantine rules, I think really deep did deeply highlight kind of like what is going on at the moment which is you know profit is king at the moment and everything else um doesn't matter and for a lot of workers like you're really angry because you can't really be safe at work and you can't really also keep you know your loved ones um safe when you what you're told that you have to uh yeah stop isolating at day seven it's pretty yeah outrageous And I want to talk to you now, because the political response has been dragged to the right, like anything that's against a sense of collective public health and safety is a right-wing response to the pandemic. But we've seen in Australia, I think, um, and internationally as well, but in Australia I wanted you to talk about the fact that the far right have seized this opportunity, and I would describe it as that, but you know, maybe you disagree, but they've taken this opportunity of the politics in response to the pandemic, the anti-vax um, conspiracy theories and so on, to really try to bolster their political forces. So how, you know, how much of a threat is the far right in Australian politics at the moment, would you say? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a combustible situation at the moment because I think the far right is growing um in strength um and numbers and you know the so-called freedom movement movement in um victoria um has been quite strong bringing out you know thousands um tens of thousands of people out on the street um on a weekly basis um and i think you know on the one hand uh the really kind of like fringe far-right um elements are leading it so we have people like harrison mclean who is one of the key organizers of the mm -hmm. anti-vax movement um, and he was the one that, you know, very publicly said that, you know, we start at Daniel Andrews bad and then we go straight into no coercive vaccines and then we go into the, you know, new world order. So pretty key figures of the anti-vax, anti-lockdown anti -lockdown movement are um, part of the far right. Um, and really, I think, you know, the crisis that Jess has been talking about and particularly, I think, um, governments that have been uh, you know, promoting the idea that, you know, the vaccines are the way to restart the economy have also added, you know, a bit of fire into that because instead of an argument being put in society that actually the vaccines are about social solidarity, they're not about restarting the economy. So that argument isn't being put forward. So then it's also allowed this huge, uh, you know, mess of, um, I guess, uh, space for the anti-vax movement and conspiracy theories to take hold. Um, so, 
I think, yeah, like they're very strong. They're also a quite strong international movement, I would say at the moment. Um, and we are seeing kind of also Australia, I think in particular, catching up with the rest of the world when it comes to the development of a right-wing uh, political movement uniting also with um, political parties. Um, so, you know, people would have seen that, um, you know, Reignite Democracy, who are the people leading um, these, you know, freedom movements have joined in with United Australia Party. Um, and actually, really outrageously, Harrison McLean is going to run for the UAP in the seat of um, Latrobe. So, yeah, clearly quite, um, yeah, strong, I would say. Mm. And not much um, mainstream kind of political contestation with them. It, you know, even Dan Andrews, who's the person that they've attacked the most, hardly says or does anything about it. Totally, because yeah. it also benefited him. You know, he's going into um, a state election and having this right-wing movement on the streets kind of makes him look more legitimate and kind of like, you know, he's doing the right thing by, you know, introducing lockdowns and doing it for the people when really he's actually been the main person also trying to reopen the economy and endanger people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I also kind of think that you have to say that like this right-wing political movement, all of their demands have actually materialized at the moment. Do I mean, there's no lockdowns, uh, you know, they're talking also about getting rid of QR codes. Do you know what I mean? Like all, all yeah. of the economy is reopened mm -hmm. and their political demands have materialized and it's the worst it's ever been. And Jess, is this, you've done some research around the international far right, um, you know. Yeah. How does this fit? Is the Australian example sort of typical of the international stuff or does it have its own kind of flavour, do you think? Um. Well, you know, like a bit of both, but. There's definitely a real pattern to these, um, you know, freedom protests, so-called, around the world because you've seen um, all across Europe in particular, but they just, um, this kind of campaign based on, as Naomi was explaining, a right-wing backlash to public health measures, um, you know, measures that are basically about social solidarity, like, doing your bit to help the vulnerable, doing your bit to help, um, you know, people who need it, that's obviously absolute anathema to the far-right worldview. So they found a really natural political space um, in the right-wing backlash to those health measures. Um, and that is, um, you know, so like in Italy they smashed up one of the trade union buildings, um, like what happened in Melbourne here, um, there's been kind of just taking up the anti-communist, uh, anti-public uh, health kind of, you know, those sort of classic far-right tropes. Um, and that's overlapped with people who have found themselves in the anti-vax movement who have come through a different path, like maybe through the wellness industry or maybe through something else, but they've found themselves in this one protest movement and that creates a pretty dangerous kind of combination because it can obscure just how far right these demonstrations really are and it gives the far right a real pull to fish in as well. So that's a really negative development that's happened in a lot of places around the world um, and that's a real improvement in the fortunes of the far right from a kind of the first, the last couple of years before that. Um, there's been like 
kind of two main strategies that the left has had in response to that. So in a few places, they've tried to really kind of reach out to the people at the far-right protests, <laughs> which sounds weird when you say it out loud, but it's a real strategy that's been tried in lots of places. Um, and to, go, uh, you know, to sort of be sympathetic and, you know, we the left has our own criticisms of the state and all that kind of stuff and just try to kind of win um, a certain number of the people who are at the far-right protests kind of back into uh, over into the fold of the left um and that's been a real failure and that has led to people being you know booed off stage at demonstrations and um a real disorientation because they're orienting to people who are really the most backwards um and right-wing um people in society at the moment mm. um and then and the it's other very kind hard of to change your position oh, yeah. from there is the other thing i think about that that's so ludicrous it's like attempting yeah. to reach out nobody wants you and then you're like well I didn't want you anyway it's like you, don't, <laughs> you can't really do that you're just stuck there so yeah anyway sorry next next yeah. strategy better one <laughs> <laughs> well just yeah quickly like there was a story from one of the French demonstrations where um a socialist like someone of the left and you know like a principled left-wing person this isn't some like cynical bullshit thing um gets up on stage at one of the freedom protests and he starts off by saying, okay, we are facing a worldwide pandemic, at which point he's immediately booed off stage because they don't agree with that. They think that COVID is a conspiracy. It's all made up by governments for nefarious ends, et cetera, et cetera. So there's not even that sort of like, it's like, what are you winning people to here? You know, they don't agree with any of the <laughs> um, very obvious things that are happening um, around the world. So anyway, yeah, so that has not, been a success the thing that I think has been um, more successful is the strategy which focuses on trying to galvanize the majority of workers and people who are vehemently opposed to the far-right protesters you know there's been lots of stories about people kind of throwing things out of apartment buildings down onto them like <laughs> the lots of progressive workers just despise these people um, and they want to do things that can make themselves and their families and their workplaces kind of safer. So there's the Chicago teachers who have refused to go into work. Um, there's the, in Adelaide, there's teachers threatening to go on strike on Wednesday. And they actually already have had their first victory um, where the state government in Adelaide has agreed to buy 3,000 air purifiers for their classrooms. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that we would love to see more of and that's really where the left should be. Yeah, that's a good segue to talk maybe if I can bring Liam in to talk about some of the issues that the union movement has been raising because I think there's been division, you know, political divisions within the union movement, within the trade union leadership about how to respond to this pandemic as well. Mm. Where are we with that, Liam, do you think? Yeah, that's right. There's, there's been, I mean, there's been disagreements but also unfortunately there's been agreements on some of the worst things like so that horrible picture that jess and now we were just describing uh, about the far right in australia i think what's happened recently uh shines a spotlight on um but there's been a weakness i think from the from the australian union movement in how to respond to that for that far right sentiment so for example even after these fascists smashed up the cfmu headquarters in melbourne um, the union movement in this in this state has still not really responded to that in terms of an actual 
visible mobilization, a response that involves actually mobilizing unions. You know, Trades Hall put out a statement at the time saying, you know, correctly saying these protesters were fascists. But that just begs the question, it's like, okay, well, if they are, because, yeah, they are, if they are, then surely the responsibility of the union movement is to, is to actually mobilize to fight that. You know, tweets and statements are not enough. So even when they're sort of saying the right thing, they're not, they're not giving us the action we need. So those little moments that, you know, we're move, moving on from the far right to talk about workplace safety. Uh, those little moments that Jess just referred to are these sort of like glimmers, you know, these diamonds of, of, that, sh- that show the potential, you know, for what the union movement could be doing and what we should be doing. But I think you'd have to say overall, the behavior of our union movement uh, in response to the pandemic from the outset has been quite appalling. You know, it's been marked mostly by class collaboration from the outset rather than saying, well, we're going to do whatever it takes and wield all of our industrial power to keep people safe, to keep workers safe and to keep, you know, our communities safe. That means shutting things down. And yeah, we're going to support lockdowns and we're going to fight for people to be paid to stay home. Well, just on that quickly, like it's, it's still the case. And I said this at the fucking outset of this whole thing. If the government could pay people for a month to stay home, just fucking stop everything and stay home for a month, there would be no pandemic. Like that's still a fact. And why are we still even after two years having to have fucking debates about bullshit and five million dead bodies that we're having this debate on top of? Mm. Like this stuff should have been solved two years ago. And that the owners of that fell to our union movement and they failed that challenge because instead of doing that, they said, we're going to fight to keep industries open. And there were some appalling examples of that. The CFMU here in Melbourne was a particularly bad example, boasting about the fact that they kept construction going during the lockdowns. Even the teachers' union, I know there's that great example just, refer- just, just referred to uh, of a potential strike in South Australia against the unsafe return to classes uh, next week. Uh, but yeah, for the, for the bulk of the pandemic, the AEU has been really slow to act and, and, and tailed behind uh, the mood of rank-and-file teachers. Mm. That's been the same in my own union. You know, I'm, a, I'm a union delegate in the NCU. I'm also an elected health and safety rep in my workplace, and I'm on national council for the NCU. And uh, the NCU also really has been slow to take up uh, some of these issues. At RMIT, we've been, we've been fighting really hard. It's where I work. Uh, we've been fighting really hard uh, around some of the basic health measures, like we want improved ventilation, we want you know, vaccine mandates, we want mask mandates, we want you know, much smaller uh, class sizes and kind of lower density of people in these workplaces. And of course, obviously, we want the right to continue working from home, especially in the midst of an outbreak like this. Uh, the, the NCU put out, an, put out a statement this week, like the national office, which is quite good. Like it demands uh, that the employers sh- should provide N95 masks. Uh, it supports vaccine mandates, actually calls for three shots to be the minimum, which is good. Uh, and uh, calls for you know, people to be allowed to work from home. But these things are all just the start. You know, it's, it's, it's very late in, the, late in the game to be, to be uh, putting this stuff out now. What we need to be doing is picking up the thread that, the, the little you know the thread that came out of the ACTU's response uh, to the appalling situation in relation to the isolation requirements. So if you cast your mind back a few weeks to the national cabinet cabinet decision, I think Jess just referred to, or now about the isolation requirements, when national cabinet said basically we don't care if you're sick, we don't mm. care if you've tested positive, mm. just get back to work. They fucking did that. Like those those workers in Tay's Meatworks, the abattoir in South Australia, that were, who were forced back even though they were tested positive. That is capitalism saying literally what socialists have always said, that, that profits are more important than public health. That's not just some fucking rhetoric. They're doing it. 
They're sending workers back into workplaces so they can continue to continue to make a profit when they know that they're infected with an, a, a deadly virus and will, will infect their workmates. In response to that, finally, the ACTU put out a statement saying, uh, you know, we're opposing these changes to isolation leave and they raised the spectre of industrial action. Like I said, that should have been done two years ago. Okay, it's good that it's finally happening now, but it's all gone quiet again. You know, yeah. that, that little thing came out. It was just out, talk. It was too. just talk. Like, mm. you know, we've, we're familiar with this. We've seen this film so many bloody times. And then Sally McManus saying, oh, but we realise it's hard for employers to get ra- rapid tests as well. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, it's just so, like one but, step forward, two steps back. Yeah. yeah. It, it, th- thanks for winding me up, Roz, because you know where my rant was going. I could have just <laughs> yeah. gone on for 20 minutes about that. But yeah, <laughs> in answer to your question, those are the issues facing the union movement. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where we are. And we need more socialists, I guess, because where some of those examples come from in the Chicago Teachers Union mm. is partly, although obviously we can't take full credit for every good thing that happens in the world, but there's quite a lot of good <laughs> things that happen because organized socialists, if you look a bit close, closer um, at how things are happening are part of that process and I think that's the same you know if you look at CAF or if you look at uh, the campaign against racism and fascism you know um, if you look at the Chicago Teachers Union like a bunch of different examples Mm. and we'll talk about those in more detail uh, this year as well as that as things come up which uh, I'm I'm really hoping that they do and I think that they will. A couple of issues just to just to um, finish off these discussions. I guess now we this will be a federal election year, and we'll have more discussion of that on the podcast, and we'll get some people on from the Victorian Socialists, some of the candidates potentially in the future as that gets a bit closer. But like, are there some local issues that I think you think are worth raising? resulting from this crisis that people kind of get their teeth into now? Mm. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, in many ways, they're the same issues that have just been kind of like accentuated by the pandemic. I think the casualization um, of workers is a huge one um, mm. at the moment. Um, if, you're, if you're a casual, you're a close contact. Um, now there is absolutely no support from the government uh, to give you a little bit of money to be able to keep the community safe. I think that one's going to be huge. Um, I also think that, you know, questions around housing affordability, um, you know, honestly, if you zoom out into a bigger picture, um, climate, I think, is a big issue at the moment. We've all seen, like, the disaster that happened in Tonga um, and how that, you know, has created uh, this huge also kind of, like, climate swing um, in uh, Australia where all the eastern beaches have been closed because, you know, there's going to be torrential rain and like pretty hectic waves um and this has impacted the rest of the world um also i think the liberals in particular are having um you know the worst climate policies um so i think questions around honestly like workplace safety access to welfare um you know climate um are gonna be big um questions in the coming year because for the i think for the first time um in a long time in Australia, I think these issues of political crisis are being deeply felt because COVID has completely um, rocked your personal life. And I think that people are seeking um, answers and it's just not good enough to just think like or say like, oh, you know, the Liberals are just, um, you know, just not very good at their jobs. It's kind of a, a wider political mm-hmm. framework of these uh, political parties being capitalist parties that only care about um, making money. And I think uh, the Labour Party actually uh, slots into that uh, perfectly um, as well. 
Mm. I think that is going to be one of the impacts of the pandemic in a kind of um, in a more medium term political way. I reckon that it it's been a time where because of the extent of the crisis and the fact that it's reached but basically everyone, but it's if impacted people in different ways in a very extremely mm. class focused way. Like that I think people will start to think about, or people have already started to think about their own values, like what is more important to me in life, being safe or, got, or you know, having a job that where my boss treats me like shit and, you know, mm. what can I do about that, um, what's important to me, and then looking at the political options and going, wait, they're actually driven by yeah. quite disgusting mm. sets of values and it's been revealed. I think, um- yeah, totally. And I think especially because, um, I mean, you had 2020 where for the first time uh, the government raised um, welfare payments where yeah. JobKeeper was there. So in many ways, um, do you mean like, holy shit, the money was there and it was just kind of like instantly there, um, ready to uh, help people when it came to, do you mean, kind of like keeping yeah. the economy safe. But for a lot of people, in a way, it's kind of like the expectations were raised and at the moment, they're not even taxing the rich. They're just continuing business as usual. And I think it begs the question like, well, the money is still there. Why are we spending it on nuclear sub- submarines? Why can I just have seven days off from work so I don't infect everyone? Do you know what I mean? I think the, the real question around, you know, health before profits, but also just like the disgusting uh, way that capitalism functions is really being exposed at the moment. And I think that it really does open... Uh, lots of opportunities for the left. Um, and I think it really makes the argument that we need to be organized to be able to kind of like be that political alternative at the moment and be able to say these things um, and actually, do you mean, have people that can actually back um, these political positions. Mm. And just um, mm. well, my last question for you, and it relates to this, I guess that um, there's been some coverage in Red Flag, but a bunch of other places quite mainstream media outlets that have covered the fact that during the pandemic when, you know, we're all in this together, supposedly is the rhetoric from the political leaders, you know, we've all got to do it tough. Actually, there are people who are not doing it tough at all. The richest people in Australia are buying up their Teslas, you know, cruising around, isolating as much as they want in their holiday houses, doing whatever the fuck they want, and their profits from their industrial, um, you know, ownership, (laughs) not work, Mm -hmm. are going up and up. Like the graphs, it's just staggering to think that there are people while everyone else is, you know, doing it tough together who are just getting richer. Is this part of what motivates you as a socialist? Um, And how do you explain this, I guess? Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, like the one of the examples that just kind of was seared into my mind was that thing about that Gina Reinhart more than doubled her whole fortune. So she's gone from sixteen billion, which is like just an an amount of money that should never be concentrated in the hands of one person, like mm. twenty times more than one person should ever have access to. Um, to 36 billion and you're just like I just found myself kind of like staring at that figure for a while because it was just you think about like what could you then do did like she also just get an order of Australia or something <laughs> <bullshit as well. laughs> I know yeah, oh my exactly. god yeah yeah uh, 
Uh, well, yeah, well, she's Thank the kind of person Thank you for taking that all they... the money and having it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Golden handshake. It's been mm. great. What a year. Um, and, you know, that's sort of inequality like that you just see throughout Australia now, which Australia is like quite a rich country by international standards. But mm. I think people have to understand as well that there's a real underbelly to that. Like there's a lot of people who don't get their share of that um, national wealth, but also just the level of inequality is just so extreme and growing as rich people just get so much richer. And that's money that could be going into the healthcare system or paying nurses mm. or any, it just it just boggles the mind like what you would do with that money if you could actually, you know, if you had like, could have like a huge kind of national democratic conversation about like, we've got billions and billions of dollars here. We could give it to Gina Reinhart. She wants it. She's happy to take it. Um, or we could give it to welfare and to nurses and to all that. Like, mm. you know exactly which way it would go. But mm. so, yeah, so there's one factor in that, I guess, is um, they did quite well at a job keeper and things like that. So I think, like it was mentioned here, the, um, the advance in welfare for normal people, which is good and just shows that they could do that anytime they wanted to at a stroke of a pen. Um, But a lot of the policies, like the money that they were throwing out, did just go straight to rich people and corporations to just line their pockets. Good on Harvey Norman. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another winner. Um, Meanwhile, you've got teachers that are scared to go back to work. Like it just tells you everything you need to know about Australia today. Um, but the other really important factor here is um, about uh, that profits and productivity are just massively outpacing wage growth. So there's all this money pouring into these companies, um, but the share of that that workers are getting is falling um, proportionally. And that's despite, you know, there's all these journalists talking about like, oh, I'm really worried about wage rises or there's some economists are like now it's very important that wages go up because that's part of a healthy economy or you know all this chatter but it just unless workers actually can get together and get organized and identify that portion that should be theirs and take it back through industrial struggle um that inequality is going to keep growing and so every day you wake up and you see some other thing like this in the news and you just think I've got to get back out there and keep fighting because otherwise yeah. this situation is just going to continue and it's just getting worse. Yeah. Now, what keeps you fighting at this point? Oh, rage. Rage. <laughs> Fueled by rage. Honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, honestly, there's so much to point to. Um, I think at the moment uh, seeing the climate crisis, um, really reach a new um, peak, I guess, um, is something that, yeah, keeps me going. Um, do I mean, like, I think for a lot of us uh, who protested COP26, um, the real main narrative, I guess, coming out of that is like, you know, I don't know, uh, net zero by 2050, which is like the biggest lie that, you know, we could ever be possibly mm-hmm. be sold. Um, but I also think just like even within this kind of like crazy mix of politics that is happening I think I've been massively inspired by you know the strikes that workers have been doing so you know we saw like Amazon warehouse workers go on strike to demand better you know health and conditions in their 
uh, workplaces. Um, you know, we're also seeing nurses speak out um, at the moment. We're seeing people still fighting for refugee rights. Um, the refugees themselves fighting for their own rights. And I think it just really gives you a sense that we really just need to keep organizing because the capitalist system just keeps throwing more and more shit. And we need people that, you know, aren't just totally bamboozled and depressed by the situation, but actually, you know, see an opening actually in this crisis of mm -hmm. wanting to organize in whatever way, shape or form we can, because, you know, like I've been part of CARFIN, we did, uh, we were part of the refugee campaign um, all of last year, and we had a few victories there where the Park Hotel refugees, like over 60 of them were released. And that was a result of the campaigns that we actually organized throughout the throughout the pandemic. And we were able to put a lot of pressure uh, through mobilizing. So I think that there's also small wins that you can do in the here and now um, that are definitely worthwhile. And really the only way that we've been able to run campaigns like that has been because we are organized socialists and we can say to people like, hey, this is happening right now. <laughs> what are you doing? Stop doing that. Come down to Park Hotel and protest, you know? Yeah, yeah it's Sunday. Yes, it's 6 p.m. But like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is important, you know? Um, so all of that, I think, is, you know, gives you a bit of, I don't know, fire in the belly to keep wanting to fight back. Mm -hmm. mm. And there's going to be some more of those. We'll put the links to some of the upcoming protests if you're in Melbourne or near Melbourne um, at the Park Hotel are going to be starting up again. So uh, if you haven't been to one, come along. Liam, I'm going to give you the final word <laughs> around your um, <laughs> around your reasons for being a socialist in, in 2022. What's keeping you going? Wow. Because I mean, when you frame it like that and even just listening to Jess and Nowy speak, then it's um, – you know, the implication being, well, it's it's such a hard time, you know, and how do we possibly avoid falling into a pit of despair and, you know, cling to, you know, some kind of hope for a better world? I think that's kind of what you're getting at when you say, you know, in yeah, 2022. I guess and, I am. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think I'm a, the reason I say that is because I'm a big believer in, in reading and studying history. Uh, and I think this is central to all socialists are, you know, it's why mm. Marx in the Communist Manifesto said, you know, the, the history of all the hitherto existing societies has been the history of class struggle. It's mm. a great rhetorical flourish, but it's actually <laughs> true. It's fucking true, you know, and one of the things yeah, we can look at. Smart. Sorry? That guy was smart. He, he was, was smart. Yeah, he was yeah. smart. I know. Yeah. He knew a thing or two, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, so one of the things that constantly inspires me to say, well, we're not the first to try to build mm. – you know, a, an organization committed to revolutionary change and, and, and fighting for, you know, genuine human liberation. We're not the first activists who have tried to do that in a period where it seems like, you know, that it's impossible or that everyone should just fall over in despair. And so learning about the amazing struggles that our movement has waged throughout history is a absolutely essential part of maintaining some kind of clarity and some perspective and, yes, gaining some hope and some inspiration uh, for the struggles that we're in right now uh, and for mm -hmm. the struggles yet to come. So I think that's – and that's, you know, like the stories themselves are also fucking rollicking adventures, you know what I mean, like amazing battles that unfolded in human history. And so, they're, you know, it's fun to read the history of class struggle and various revolutionary movements and so on from that perspective, but, but it's also educational. You know, we can learn about and we need to learn about, uh, you know, 
because we don't want to be having to fucking do this forever. And we don't want, you know, the next generation of socialists and revolutionaries to also have to look back and say, well, how did they get it wrong during the period of the COVID oh. pandemic? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like at some point we've got to get this shit right. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's, it's socialism or barbarism. Like we don't have this, we don't have forever to try to get it right. Yeah. Um, so it, there's an urgency to reading about the past as well. And I think that's a big part of trying to understand the world, trying to understand how, cla- how class war functions uh, and how our side can actually win. Mm. Mm. And we should uh, tell some more of those stories on this podcast, I reckon, this year to, mm. to do mm. that very thing and inspire people to read as well as listen to podcasts, although obviously listen to this one. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Jess and Naui um, and Liam, and welcome back to 2022, yeah. everyone. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs> <laughs>